0: Hello, hello, welcome to Mostly Harmless, episode three. I'm your host, Ben Bache. Thanks for joining me again for our latest adventure. I hope everybody's having a good summer for those folks in the U.S. I am currently expecting with my partner, our baby boy, uh, to be born sometime end of September or beginning of October, so very excited and busy with uh, new dad-to-be type things, but uh, happy to be here today talk about some interesting things that uh, I've seen since... We all last uh, gathered around the campfire here. So we'll start with the rundown this time. Um, We've got Facebook Aloha, which surfaced a researcher, uh, hacker, Jane Wong, found the sort of erstwhile Facebook voice assistant while poking around some source code. Uh, Not too much detail in terms of what it actually does, per se. I know that we've heard rumors about a dedicated voice device from Facebook, that is forthcoming, seems to be delayed for privacy and PR reasons, but is still set to come out. And you also have heard probably about the research and testing that's been done with Facebook's so-called M assistant, uh, which was both a, I believe for certain people you could talk to M itself as a sort of chatbot type assistant. And more recently they've pulled in M's Predictive functionality to aid inside of uh, human human conversations. So it's not totally clear what Aloha is going to be used for. Is it going to be used for helping communicate, send this message to someone, sort of manage my messenger potentially experience um, in terms of sort of helping me functionally use the app? Um, maybe it's going to be more of like a way to interact with businesses. So another modality potentially to interact with. Facebook's Messenger platform in terms of chatbots, etc. I think voice messaging was the other piece that sort of surfaced around the same time as this in Instagram specifically, and I think that's another important thread to keep an eye on when it comes to voice interfaces, voice commerce, um, assistance, even voice messages. We know they've exploded in China And WhatsApp, uh, they're very, very popular. And so now with WhatsApp's business API, which uh, is a huge deal and and I think worth paying very, very close attention to, um, it's it's interesting to think about whether voice messaging in B2C context, talking to a vendor over voice, um, asynchronous voice messages, is potentially a path for... As automation generally is layered on top of WhatsApp, now that they have an API, chatbots and automated pieces of the flow start to come into play. Whether voice sort of continues or the the voice piece evolves as well in a similar direction. And so potentially Facebook actually is really well positioned in this B2C conversation sort of assistant router, um, kind of almost like a search engine. It's a place that uh, I know that Google wants to be, and, and and Amazon to some extent sort of is with Alexa already. Um, so it will be uh, a very big. I think that this Aloha, uh, depending on exactly what it does, I'm most interested in seeing it probably come to to WhatsApp ultimately because the WhatsApp B2C story in terms of uh, it's ado- it's actual adoption in its dominant markets. Uh, for things like customer service or even uh, here in South Africa, you can uh, you can now talk to your ABSA banker um, via via WhatsApp. I think it's it's, it's going to be a very powerful place for these conversations that are already happening. Millions and millions and millions of them um, with that, you know, messengers having a little bit more difficulty in the West getting adoption for for kind of everyday B2C use cases. Be interesting to see if uh, Aloha or some other version of this voice assistant from Facebook takes off in WhatsApp, potentially, um, and, and whether that is a sort of commerce aggregator or assistant uh, remains to be seen. So um, I am very skeptical of kind of the voice-controlled social camera thing that Facebook is potentially trying to do with this, this smart device um, for privacy reasons, but um, uh, we've definitely seen some early signs that that may work with the Echo Show. I just don't know if Facebook has user trust for for a device like that. Um, Next we got the Samsung event. A few notable things here. Um, It's not the developers conference, which I didn't realize. Uh, I was waiting for Bixby 2.0 and uh, the exact specs and documentation of this, this new platform, this new assistance platform. We didn't get that, we just kind of got it in the context of the Galaxy Home, which is a home device. I'm not really gonna talk much about it because I don't even. I don't really think that the home device speaker is the most important voice battleground. I think it's the smartphone. So I was much more interested in some of the demos they showed of Bixby two, in the context of the the Galaxy Note, um, I guess the Note nine or whatever. Um, so a few things stuck out at me, which was like the multimodality of Bixby and uh, of your interaction with Bixby, is one thing that they're probably uh, far ahead of any other sort of erstwhile or or or. You know, contender for that that digital assistant crown um, in the fact that you can use input with the camera UI and rich buttons and information is displayed on screen as well. So blended sort of input and output, voice input plus the text log of everything that you've asked it, and text as an alternative input. Um, and so Bixby just seems to be much more embracing this multimodal future, which uh, in the in the uh, in the rapport. Um, we will be talking to uh, Michael Nakashimida, who is going to be talking to me a lot about multimodality in the context of transportation as a service as opposed to conversational interfaces. But uh, it's an interesting parallel there. Um, So very interested to see when Bixby 2 actually drops this fall at Samsung Developer Conference, and we get a sense of really what's possible. And from the perspective of an app developer in particular, what... What kind of hooks, what kind of access, and what kind of experiences are developers going to get uh, to be able to create with Bixby in a way that is more compelling than, let's say, building on Assistant uh, for their Android users? So I think what I'm looking out for and what I haven't seen much of yet during this very brief demo from the the phone side of things is what is the architecture in terms of third-party developers – um, what is going to be Samsung's strategy in terms of getting those developers to adopt it and build first-class experiences for Bixby? Uh, and is there going to be some of this old Viv, the team uh, that was acquired by by Samsung to kind of augment their big Bixby experts, the original Siri people, uh, Dag Kittlehouse? Um, are we going to see some of the stuff that they demoed when they were still Viv around dynamic program generation where the sort of query is kind of resolved by your agent in in real time and the program is is sort of drawn from multiple service providers and functions. And there's a whole other conversation about technically how does something like this truly work when the applications you're letting developers create are themselves assistants and not just sort of little skills here and there or little shortcuts here and there. Um, So... And the other kind of thing that, that that stuck out at me there was was the fact that they announced their, their Galaxy Watch running Tizen. I know Tizen has been a bit of a running joke, you know, will they, won't they over the past few years. Um, it kind of goes in waves in terms of whether people are taking Tizen seriously. Is is Samsung really kind of eyeing the exit or kind of having a hedge in place in case the Android relationship with Google goes sour? But I do think that in an assistant-driven world, and, and given where... Where Google is going to need to go with its Pixel strategy, with differentiating via Assistant as opposed to, uh, you know, they had their botched exclusivity with Assistant on the Pixel. But I do actually think that that's that's Google's going to need to go into that differentiated. Um, they they they. This is a whole other conversation, but they they may need to truly pivot from a from a, their search business model to something that in the sort of digital assistant world. Uh, is monetizing the user much more directly, whether that's hardware uh, transactions and shopping, although that's kind of hard to see with Amazon's foothold. So uh, Google has some interesting choices ahead of it in terms of that, and uh, I'll probably do another episode talking just about that. But when it comes to Samsung, I do think that this Android grand bargain, this sort of hot piece, if you will, uh, between all the different OEMs and app developers and... And Google itself, uh, I wonder if we are getting to a point where that's starting to break down. And uh, Samsung putting its future, the wearables, from a hardware perspective, is a very future-looking piece of, of these sort of tech conglomerates portfolios. Uh, and future businesses, they're running it on Tizen. And so I wonder if we see a sort of Tizen-Bixby strategy from Samsung begin to emerge. I think they have a phone running Tizen coming out later this year. And whether they sort of start to try to get directly to the customer and establish a a, a truly differentiated relationship that is beyond uh, the Play Store and beyond the... Um, Beyond the, the, you know, Google mobile services and, Google mobile services and, and those types of lock-in that, that have traditionally held Android together. So speaking of the, the Play Store, we've got a, a story that's bubbled up uh, around both Fortnite and Netflix separately um, making some moves around bypassing the, the App Store duopoly. Now, if you tease this apart, this really is two separate stories. Fortnite is going completely over the top. For Android and and distributing distributing the game directly and bypassing the Play Store, whereas uh, Netflix it was revealed is looking into testing out of App Store out of iTunes billing, uh, basically kicking you out to mobile web, somewhat similar to the way that you have to deal with Kindle with uh, with Amazon, although it's a slightly different model. It's a little bit apples oranges, um, but it's just that they're cutting out billing as a. Uh, something that they that they they basically pay Apple a thirty percent tax in the first year and a fifteen percent thereafter for the frictionless u x of of getting people to pay through that, but since Netflix is so differentiated uh, and so is fortnite we're seeing i and I guess these are two different stories, but they do kind of have a very common theme and that 's why it's been been written about a lot together is that people are choosing their services, the key things that they use every day as a very salient Uh, basis of competition when it comes to dealing with smartphones and selecting smartphones. And so the fear has always been, particularly with, let's say, with Apple and China, that WeChat became so much more indispensable than iOS or the iPhone hardware itself that Apple was in danger of becoming... Dumb glass because WeChat basically works the same, looks the same on on any device and and that's really the thing that matters, and not the phone that turns out to not have totally played out in China, uh, probably because the the iPhone hardware premium and the 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 it still commands a significant uh advantage and and so there's there's but but the fear is always there, the narrative is always there, and the question has always been are these gatekeepers with this very fat margin they're taking off the top uh, of developers and their ecosystems is that a sustainable model are people going to maybe will they switch because of an exclusive thing like uh, samsung having fortnite for like five seconds or whatever um or people are are they just more going to stop caring about their phone because everything is cross-platform now they can kind of get what they want and the most important services like let's say netflix and fortnite May just kind of go directly to me and find some way, even if it's a little bit more friction right now, uh, like the Netflix solution, it may still be worth it as a customer. And that's pretty scary for smartphone, anyone in the kind of smartphone space that stands to lose from the current duopoly status quo, whether that's OEMs, uh, whether that's uh, Apple or Google themselves. Um, so I'm not sure that it means the same thing between iOS and Android. I actually think Androids is more severe. This question of Fortnite literally being distributed outside the Play Store is a bit more of a breach in the wall than the sort of billing leak that we're talking about with Netflix. Uh, but I do think that they're both potential signs that we're reaching a certain part in the smartphone S-curve, the smartphone app S-curves, which are related but different, In the, that is... Showing that things are changing, that 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 the sort of conventional wisdom of Apple and Google both won the smartphone wars. Uh, I think Benedict, Benedict Evans is very fond of that. Um, has been right up until potentially now when it may start to fall apart. So um, definitely see if... I'd like to see what kinds of other apps potentially explore this. Content apps and games are pretty obvious. But uh, it's definitely significant. It's just not... Sort of the the this isn't the end of the smartphone dominance this isn't not this isn't a threat to apple's earnings um it's It's right now the exception rather than the rule, but definitely something to keep an eye on um, Next up we've got snap and Amazon partnering for AR shopping. Um, this is really the extension and the and the fleshing out of the snap platform story and the platform play this time we're zooming in on the camera sensor uh, and interpretation of the of the camera data itself. But, uh, and this is Josh Constein reporting in, in TechCrunch around this, uh, I think it's, they're calling it Project Eagle. Snapchat's basically building, and I'm quoting from Josh here, uh, building a visual product search feature codename Eagle that delivers users to Amazon's listings buried inside the code of Snapchat's Android app is an unreleased visual search feature where you press and hold to identify an object, song, barcode, and more, um. This works by sending data to Amazon, Shazam, and other partners. So the other partners, the using of the third-party services here, this is all different pieces of where Snap's platform for third-party developers and services in this AR future that's starting to bubble up uh, comes from and is is winding up. So you've got uh, the Shazam tap to identify a song, which I had always... I always was looking at that and I was like, that's not just going to be for music. It's not just going to be for audio. Um, if you think about it, the Shazam integration isn't even a camera integration in the sense that it's it's actually using the audio camera, or the microphone, as I like to call it. So there's there's this blending of the different modalities and the different uh, mediums in this concept of a camera that uh, is pretty clear that, that Snap sees both Shazam and Amazon integrations uh, as of like kind, in that they are they're processing data via third party uh, using the sensors on the phone to deliver some kind of experience that the customer is looking for, the user is looking for. Um, and so, you can definitely imagine other things depending on the technical specs and and what's possible uh, to pass the developers. But one can imagine other uses of this, identifying locations, directions. Uh, We're not totally sure how they're going to position this relative to the other shopping pieces. Is this going to be a continuous journey from the sort of identification of the product to checking out right there in Snap? That's kind of uh, one idea. Or is it feed into a lens as well? The idea that maybe you can also see that Amazon product on your table once you've pulled up the, the skew. Using probably the context cards um, that Snap has rolled out for things like locations on maps, some some object-based concept of a product as almost a primitive there is pretty likely. Um, so the the platform players coming together, you've got different pieces now. This is the camera piece, the sensor piece, which is a very important one. But we've had the on-screen display and interaction with lenses, games, and snappables. So you're really seeing that that drawing on the screen and AR over the the camera over the real world and now the interactivity the beginnings of that uh, when it comes to shoppable AR when it comes to uh, interactive games and things like that you've got the identity component with Bitmoji and SnapKit that's going to be particularly for um, um, you know gaming or social gaming you could see Bitmoji maybe being kind of your your almost avatar your digital avatar in that sense uh, in the AR world or in the mixed reality world um, you've got location as it, the sort of map itself as a platform uh, in waiting I would say um, geo filters were early pieces of of kind of letting third parties layer on their own instances or experiences onto the real world. I expect to see more around that when it comes to especially businesses and potentially Yelp type use cases when you're talking about how does Snap monetize this map in a way that's more clever than just kind of throwing ads onto it Um, there's lots of different places that could go Um, and you know commerce endpoints like I mentioned there's the shoppable there's, there's sort of the checkout flow checkout UI components that are uh, I think, being used in conjunction with Shopify in there. So the, the Amazon-Snapchat partnership, I think, is probably a more of a launch partnership than sort of like a uh, we're tied together for life. And it's probably going to be the early stages of some sort of developer platform for inside of Snap, inside of a Snap camera experience, uh, being able to sort of hydrate that, that camera data with rich other data sets like a product library or um, a map of locations and reviews and things like that. So this is a very significant piece. And, and I think Amazon and snap have a a natural, they're naturally complementary in this, in this use case, but it also does show that the camera, cause Amazon is investing in its own camera in the Amazon app. It has a, actually has almost like Snapchat style features. If you really get into the Amazon camera, it's got like stickers and a, also the crazy shit in there. Um, and, uh, and so, but yeah, and they've, they have QR codes as well, which is something that I didn't mention, which is one of the other things you can be taking in here is not just recognizing an image or hearing a song, but actively looking for sort of snap codes and things like that. And, and, and this whole idea, this whole mentality of the, 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 the user basically using snap as sort of their Len, their explorer for the world, their their AR explorer and navigator is uh is all kind of pointing at the same thing. Um so it's it's definitely going to be a a significant cooperative piece and a potential platform play where you've got Shopify coming in there as another, you know, place where products can come from. Um I imagine Wayfair would be pretty similar. They'd have a lot to do with, with with Snap. They have a lot of incentive to to build on that. But the control of the camera is a choke point, right? And so Amazon's inability to drive the type of camera usage on a daily basis that Snapchat has puts it at a disadvantage from starting and initiating and mediating that AR interaction within an Amazon property. They're sort of relegated to being in the very lucrative sort of e-commerce part of that funnel. But if they want to... know, if Alexa wants to become your sort of guide in AR and they really want to own that next choke point in addition to voice, which is going to be the camera, uh, Snapchat definitely has the upper hand here and and is, um, you know, they're they're the senior partner in the sort of camera space and the junior partner in the monetization space, and they could definitely use the the money, uh, affiliate fees, or I don't know exactly how the economics of that works out. So, um, huge, huge, hugely interesting for me, obviously, I follow this very closely. And uh, it's interesting to see that sort of full commerce journey across the different pieces of their AR platform uh, that's beginning to come together, as well as the computing journey in terms of um, just how rich the functionality is going to be for developers to, to to create experiences on such an important and active camera as Snap. Um, so we'll move on now to the uh, the ramble here. We'll talk a bit about Snap as well. So Fortnite has been has over the last several months completely taken over the gaming world. It's eaten countless, uh, you know, it's 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 gobbled up tons of, of viewing share on Twitch. It's become the talk of the normal world in terms of parents wondering is this good or is this bad. Public interest stories or social interest stories about how people are finding friendship on it it's a cultural phenomenon at the level that is sort of drowning out the news, all the major stories in the world. Like Fortnite is basically the biggest thing in the world right now from a cultural standpoint. And it's a video game. And I think it's a very important turning point. I'm not sure we've ever necessarily been here before. And I'll talk a little bit about why I think Fortnite is is unique in that and what, what was different. But this to me is a, is a evolution of gaming becoming a much bigger part of not just hardcore gamers' lives, but everybody's lives. And what gaming really means to start to sort of change and very much go from things that we sort of associate with entertainment to things that we might more associate with communication, with uh, keeping in touch with friends, uh, with spending time together, and also even with computing in terms of the way we interact with Uh, with software, with the world, particularly as we're moving to the AR mixed reality type thing uh, in the not too distant future. So just taking a step back and thinking about sort of where games have been in the past. I mean, you had the PC era, you had hardcore gaming. um, That overlapped with sort of the, the console gaming, which was probably the beginnings of the casual gaming. You can probably trace a line from from some people buying Nintendo to, to Candy Crush, but there isn't there is a big overlap with hardcore in terms of consoles and PCs. They are typically hardcore gamers, with maybe the exception of um, uh, or a lot of them are hardcore gamers with maybe the exception of uh, Nintendo strategy, which is a much more mass market one. Um, and I think it wasn't until mobile. I mean, you had you definitely had a the 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 console was making a push into the home, into the mass market. It, I don't think, ever became a mega mass market product like we've seen in mobile, but it definitely was a a, a bridge that sort of brought some of the wonkiness of PC gaming and graphics cards and all this other complexity and, and, and things like that. Um, but it wasn't really until mobile that I think that that really, like, normal, regular... Everybody, people, you know, people who you wouldn't expect to be playing video games started playing games. And they were very simple. Candy Crush, the early iPhone games. are like being bored in line, entertaining myself for a few minutes at a time. It's always been, even from the beginning of the app store, the different app stores, gaming has been the dominant sort of app type. I mean, it's almost like games and everything else. And that's even how Apple has has structured their app store uh, most recently. And so the The spectrum has potentially shifted significantly towards more people in the world playing video games in this mobile era, in total, and even PC games and in, in esports having their sort of own growth curves alongside it. Obviously, becoming uh, a bona fide sport in and of itself. Um, they've also always been social. You've got Xbox Live, you've got Steam, Facebook had browser games. That was like a whole kind of very quick bubble. Um, you've In the mobile era, you've got words with friends and draw something and quiz up. Those things were really, really hot at the time. They captured everybody's imagination, especially a certain um, age and segment. Um, and uh, it was, we're playing a video game, maybe a simple text-based one, like a quiz, with friends on our phones. And that, that has a lot to do and a lot of parallels with what was happening and it has been happening in social media and communications apps at the same time because games were becoming social but social was becoming gamified and maybe has always been gamified likes and retweets amassing followers you even today with sort of like political twitter and and kind of mobs of of kind of folks going after people and arguments and things like that. You've got, like, almost, like, clans and missions and coordinated flame wars going on uh, that wouldn't seem that out of place in, in a world of Warcraft. And let's say Snapchat and their streaks, the ability to kind of keep your high score up of communicating with your friend every day, uh, or the funny lenses that Snapchat has. Um, you're you're somewhat playing a game by participating in social media with each other. It's game-like. and And so as these two... Things that have been separate, social or communications and games, you can't help but think about how they have always been related and and, and intertwined activities. And how they really actually, they're blending together now. Says a lot about games, says a lot about social, but says a lot about maybe what's going to be coming next from a computing standpoint. So I think that social and gaming, they... They both do some of the same core jobs: escapism, entertainment, uh, spending time together, things like that. So the the idea that Netflix competes with Fortnite for people's time and attention is an important one for for Netflix and for Fortnite to keep in mind. The idea of time with media it's zero sum. Uh, time spent somewhere is time not spent somewhere else, and and so you see the 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 competition of sort of, let's say, using Facebook versus going on um, Fortnite with your friends, there's almost an overlap to some extent of why you're using both of those things. And the younger generation potentially is spending more time on this gaming piece and getting what they need, what they may have needed from the social standpoint from that gaming piece. They also play, play off one another in the sense that your... Kind of linking to one and interacting with one in the context of the other. So you may be watching a stream together on Twitch, or you may have Discord or voice chat while playing something like Fortnite. Uh, but the this sort of th- they keep kind of coming up together. And wherever there's one without the other, whether they're social without gaming or games without social social components, you kind of see the other start to pop up. So. They're embedded in one another in the sense that you have friends' graphs inside of games. And I actually argue that Fortnite, the people you're going to play Fortnite with every day, the high school kids playing Fortnite, the graph of people they play with Fortnite every day from their high school is probably similar to the graph of of people that they're snapping every day on on Snapchat. Um, I think they overlap a lot. Or you have the other reverse, which is games inside of social networks. So Facebook Instant Games has been around for a little bit. You've got Snappables from Snapchat. This is all about playing games together inside the conversation, giving you something to do, giving something, almost an excuse to be communicating and to be together, which is, let's say, let's forget it about talking about the news, let's do something together, let's participate, let's do something fun together, and this will be how we connect and communicate. Um, PC gaming is definitely very strong still. Uh, I w- I'm not trying to say that it's, that it's. I mean, I even saw a chart that that had its adoption way higher than I than I than I had realized relative to mobile in terms of gaming. But I think mobile gaming has helped gaming culture in general. And I think as we get to sort of why Fortnite is special, what is different about Fortnite, this cross-platform, and cross-platform not just meaning across consoles and PC and different consoles, but with mobile and sort of that consumer form factor, starting with iPhone. Uh, that That has been transformative in terms of the whole cultural moment because I think maybe because you can take it with you as well as playing it in the home, the barriers to entry, you can download, everybody has the phone already, download it from the app store, Uh, but the ability for everybody to play together and for that, that all these different pieces of gaming to come together under one mega hit game uh, can't be really understated. It's also, um, it's really hard to master, like I'm terrible at Fortnite, Uh, I die very quickly, usually but it's not really rocket science to learn how to how to play it so the it's not some complicated you know even mo- a MOBA or a, a RPG where you have to invest all this time in learning rules and etc it's just a shooter you drop on the map just go um everybody has known since Halo basically how to play a game like this um the the map is an interesting piece here as well because it gives a bit of a spatial canvas in the sense that the map never changes uh it, there's variations on it but it's the same place which is something that um maybe the battle royale genre had inherited from from mobas from from games like Dota and League of Legends where all the action was on top of the map uh that versus the the map itself and different levels etc so fortnite's map is almost like a character in the game with you and you saw like a i don't know it was like a hamburger from the town, one of the towns in Fortnite, like, showed up in a desert, like, a real-life desert. And you've got sort of in-game events, and the map changes for those events, and things happen inside the map. Um, it, it really makes the Fortnite map be a, even though it's a tiny little world, even though it's, a, it's only 100 people at a time, it makes you feel like you're going to Fortnite together. Uh, you're going into fortnite it 's a place that you go, and that place is it it is as much a character as anything else in the game as you are or your the other players are and it is a it's a a very interesting map that if you think about just sort of our relationship to maps, you have the real world and our relationship to that is mediated by our mapping apps. Maybe now with Snapchat you've got your Snap map starting to become something that you you look at or play with in terms of the context of seeing where your friends are. But the Fortnite map is a map that you know people could dream of. Fortnite players can can dream and and they can see the Fortnite map. It's a thing that that is that exists, a spatial canvas for Fortnite to iterate on, to can constantly make it exciting and relevant and tied into culture and tied into movie releases and tied into whatever it may need to be tied into. It's almost like a a platform or a canvas for Fortnite to, to hold constant the map, but vary everything that happens on top of the map. And that gets the kind of the personal canvas, which is more about self-expression, the designing your avatar, designing your gear, getting gear, buying clothing, uh, choosing your, 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 your gloating dance, uh, your sort of celebration dance. All this is this is Fortnite's business model, and this is about being who you are and 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 expressing yourself via your player inside the the Fortnite game that is the same, but it's different every time. If that makes sense. So the, the and the social piece of this is is twofold. Uh, I'll separate social from kind of like the so broadcasting the idea of Twitch streamers influencers. That's a way for the influencers to connect more intimately with their fans. You've got prominent liberal talk show, Chapo Trap House, uh, Felix Biederman uh, has a Fortnite channel for them now. And this is is one of the ways that some of their gaming fan crossovers will get to know them better, hang out with them more, spend time with them. And so the broadcast streamer phenomenon has been around since before uh, Fortnite, but has basically broken out of the gamer segment and you've got people do like Logan Paul doing Fortnite streaming. Like it's become a medium of self-expression and, and, and creating content and storytelling and spent and sort of wasting time and reality TV like It's become its own format for broadcast, for entertainment, for kind of social in the, in the, in the worldly sense of the word. And then you've got the communication side, which is discord, which is playing together, which is friends sort of playing together every day after school and talking while they're playing and, and connecting, it's basically more of a a thing for us to look at, almost like a fire to sit around when you're camping that we can use as the, the context and the excuse to be together and to spend time together and not need to come up with some witty conversation, not need to sort of have something serious to talk about, but we're just, you know, messing around, playing games. It's something that's... It's the... the especially young people who have... They crave being together, they crave that social experience, and games are are for their for their close friends and, and maybe their online friends a very important piece of, of how they interact with people um, online. And so you've got Fortnite, I think, has changed the game. It's the first It's the first video game that I think has hit sort of Avengers level cultural cachet. I think we've had big hits in the past. Pokemon Go was a flash in the pan. Halo had a cult following. I mean FIFA has a massive reach in terms of this the, the massive global football community. But fort nothing has come close to Fortnite in terms of transforming culture and content and social media and warping everything. It it takes up it takes people's attention away from TV, away from Instagram, away from other sort of ways you could be spending your time and it takes away from communication apps to some extent because if you're spending all your time in the fortnite world together you you're communicating over whatever you use to communicate there which uh, in a lot of cases is is discord and that's why discord the chat app is so valuable um but i think looking at snap here for a moment as well from a a social tool a communications tool integrating gaming becoming more game-like they're already, they've, like I said, they've already been gamified. Snap, to some extent, is a game that you play with your close friends. They record the score via streaks. Uh, You're maybe pretending to be whoever you're putting the lens on for a moment. You're playing, quote-unquote, in the almost like the the theater sense of the word. But it's becoming more explicit. It's becoming much more literal. You've got lenses becoming games with snappables, which uh, are these sort of there's different interaction methods, but they're sort of games delivered as AR lenses, essentially. You've got rumors of a new gaming platform. It's not clear what exactly that means, as distinct from Snappables. Does it mean that it's more of integrating Snap's communication tools inside of your game so you can play with your Snap friends? Or is it more of a continued extension of lenses to be much more uh, robust and, 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 having sort of world snappables where you're maybe playing Pokemon Go or some stripped-down version of Pokemon Go or some kind of Harry Potter, Marauder's Map or or something like that. So um, And then as we start to see, I think today, uh, there's talk about how Thrillist is launching a always-on show on Discover. Um, that's not exactly a live stream or a live streaming channel inside Discover, but you do wonder if uh, maybe we'll be seeing some gaming channels start to pop up or things like that inside of discover and and games becoming content for that entertainment side of snapchat um so what does this all mean i mean what does this mean for gaming going forward what does this mean for social media going forward as gaming and social media are in in this kind of almost mimetic mem- dance together um i mean games are showing us the future of both communication computing entertainment everything is intertwined and when we're starting to talk about AR we're talking about the early stages today with the phone as the key piece but as we move to glasses and as we move to um the as we move to AR as the sort of totality of the computing surface you're going to start to see games I think become what Roberto Verganti and his uh design driven innovation called a there, it's going to go through a radical innovation of meaning of what it means to have a game because I think that while Fortnite, for example, is still a game, it is much more than that. Uh, it's a it's a third place. It's a it's a place for people to connect online together and to sort of be together when we're apart. Which in a lot of ways is my argument for what what Snap is already and what, what they need to continue to be as they, as they themselves start to focus more and more on gaming. And so gaming is not just a pure intrinsic enjoyment of playing a game, mastering the game, playing even together. It is a much more complex and pervasive and encompassing concept that communication, I mean, enter, let's start with entertainment. So entertainment, it's eating TV for this younger generation. It's eating sports. Esports is filling stadiums from a content perspective of what people are watching online, what they're experiencing online in a passive way, gaming is starting to eat a ton of that. Uh, YouTube started that. Now it's Twitch as well in terms of live um, and these personalities and these massive, massively famous streamers. Um, gaming is now an integral part of entertainment in terms of the hours we spend literally gaming, as a especially this younger generation, and consuming gaming-related content. It's starting to become a, a sizable piece of 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 this entertainment bucket in terms of what we do in our spare time. Communication. We'll be playing the games together more and more. The lines will probably keep blurring. Is how we communicate about what we're doing together or is what we're doing together mediated and, and is it dependent on how we're communicating? Which is, is Snapchat going to become more game, more of an encompassing gaming platform or place for you to play games? Or is Fortnite going to have more and more of your time spent in Fortnite and it's sort of associated social functionalities or features. It's, uh, it's going to be something where you, you also bring your sort of best friends in the real world or in your kind of, let's say your top 10 in Snap or iMessage or whatever it might be. And you're going to sort of bring them with you as you're going into exploring these worlds, games, whatever they really do become in, in AR or, or VR. Um, you're going to be bringing your friends with you into doing that, and that may be what you do to hang out together. Particularly if, let's say, you you're, you know live close together or whatever it may be. This may be how we start to spend time together, which fundamentally is a is an act of a uh, communication. And lastly, I think computing is also something that games are going to have a profound impact on. They've always had these sort of indirect impacts like ui design has has been refined by games games have 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 pioneered interesting pieces of ui uh and and ux and and they have their own contributions to that field based on that and based on game mechanics Um, it's also from a technological standpoint gpus and the just the whole kind of tech curve of 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 the internet has been pushed by you know porn and games right video games vr uh graphics all these advances gaming has played a significant role but i think when ar and vr and when this sort of glasses first mixed reality type world comes to pass game-like dynamics are going to become more integral in the way that we kind of do computing tasks and interact with software so in mobile the app takes over the whole screen it is a, an experience that is exclusive to the one app you're running. We're going to see assistants potentially break that up with these more kind of uh, functional, uh, for lack of a better word, division of, of things into different shortcuts and intents and things like that and mixing and matching. Um, but in AR and VR, the limitations of the screen don't really exist. And so you can have multitasking of applets that run on and emerge out of the world. You may have your to-do list app kind of sitting on your your night counter or something like that in that sense. And so the games, gaming, potentially become related experiences in the way that we uh, maybe go by a business, we play a little game with the business to sort of get an offer or some kind of special deal or something like that. Um, but it also just m- might mean that you're... Your, your sort of uh, the, the base layer, almost. If you think about the Oasis in Ready Player One, all the digital world, every app, every sort of interaction, every business was on top of a sort of neutral game world, our sort of base, ground, second reality. And the ownership of that second reality is going to be the... Probably the fundamental platform fight, the kind of camera map singularity fight uh, that Snapchat's going to be in, Facebook's going to be in, Amazon's going to be in, Apple's going to be in, Google's going to be in. That's that's really the 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 one to watch when it comes to okay, but who's going to win this? How's this going to look? Which company is going to come from? Where's it going to come from? Um, and so I think that the this sort of total addressable market of gaming across the PC era, the mobile era, and the AR era, it sort of gets closer and closer to everybody. It starts with this kind of hot core of of, of hardcore gamers, and it, and we're starting to see the, the kind of expanded uh, universe of gaming and what gaming means and who games and when you game and what gaming's impact on the culture is going to be, such that I think in the mixed reality world, the idea of gaming may start to fade away as useful concept as so much of what we do together uh, or even alone in our day-to-day lives is is game-like or intermediated by games or is involved in games, is gamified. It seems to me that as we go further and further into that mixed reality world, uh, the bigger and bigger deal uh, gaming becomes. And and that's why I think uh, Snapchat in particular needs to continue to focus on that. Um, For the rant, I got nothing. This week, I'm in a great mood. Um, My first child, baby boy, is going to be born in six weeks or so. And so I got nothing to rant about this week. Uh, We'll move on right to the uh, rapport with uh, Michael Nakashimira. Okay, and now on to the rapport. I have my friend Michael Nakashimira. Um, Michael, thanks for, for joining us today.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here to chat about micromobility. Awesome, man.
0: Um, so Michael is working on uh, an early-stage company uh, that's helping cities interface with micromobility, but um, his background is deep in the mobility space, worked for Movil, um, which was acquired by Daimler, which was a multimodal uh, sort of route planning app across the different uh, modalities. And I think we'll get into multimodality a lot today. So um Michael, thanks for joining us. You want to say a few words about uh, kind of what you're currently working on and and how you got into this space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so right now I'm working at an early stage startup called Ride Report here in Portland, Oregon. And we're uh, actually working on a whole dashboard and tool set for city planners and policymakers um, to help them manage this new influx of micromobility and new modalities that are uh 6 to 12 months, whether that's Bird or Jump or Lime or private bike share or bikes, Um, we want, we really straddle between the the private and public world and kind of make that uh, data sharing uh, regulation more seamless. And at the end of the day, our mission is to make, uh, accelerate the development of bicycle and micromobility infrastructure in our cities. Um, And yeah, so I uh, a lot of people ask me, how, how did you fall into this world of mobility, micromobility, scooters? And it's honestly, uh, it was by a complete accident, uh, both figuratively and literally speaking. Um, the first accident was I actually got into a pretty bad car wreck uh, where I was sandwiched between two cars and my uh, Subaru was completely destroyed. Uh, luckily, I uh, escaped without much injuries. Um, but that kind of got my wheel spinning around this these new transportation problems and autonomous vehicles were just starting to emerge and be talked about and it happened to be that week uber actually launched in portland and so instead of going out and buying a new vehicle i was I was obviously shaken up uh, post accident I decided to forego purchasing a vehicle and just start taking Uber and public transit around places. And so that really opened up my eyes to uh, this whole world of multimodality, um, you know, I- intermodal routing between different modes, whether it's bike to bus to um, Uber and Lyft. Um, and then again, the second accident was that uh, the company I was working at uh, was a startup building developer tools, databases as a service. Uh, we got acquired by a company in Seattle. And at the time, uh, same time frame, I, I couldn't move uh, to Seattle because of some health issues. Uh, and so I went on to the local startup forum, uh, trying to find something I would be interested in. Um, and I found this little payment company, mobile payment company in Portland, working with public transit agencies. And that, that, that startup was called Sherpa And I worked with a variety of different Municipalities uh, and public transit agencies across the U.S. Uh, doing mobile ticketing, smart card management, payments for uh, uh, the transit systems, um, and so I, uh, you know, I wanted to do something impactful. I was really interested in transportation, um, and so I joined this startup. Um, and a few months later, we actually were bought, as as you said earlier, we were bought acquired by uh, Daimler Mobility Services. Um, and with this vision of building a multimodal product where you can get around cities uh, seamlessly with one account, one payment system, uh, uh, using the different modalities the city has to offer. Um, and so I worked there for the last three years and that's really immersed me uh, into this whole new world of mobility, uh, autonomous vehicles, and now uh, where I'm at with micro mobility, uh, which is, uh, it's funny because, uh, You know, most people have been talking about autonomy for the last three, four, five years, uh, whether that's startups, VCs, car suppliers, OEMs, everyone's talking about how the world's shifting to autonomy. Um, And At the same time, I started questioning that, right? Uh, Because, you know, when the incumbents and new entrants and tech companies are all talking about the same thing, I, I just, I didn't find that to be disruptive. I didn't think anything, you know. It, it wasn't bringing about meaningful change in a, fa- a quick enough time frame in the world of transportation. And so that's how I got into uh, this whole world of micromobility. And it, most people might know that as scooters and e-bikes, but uh, we'll, we'll talk later more about what, what that term means. Um, but yeah, that's how I, anyway, long story. Uh, it's how I got into mobility and why I, uh, you know, I dream about this. I'm passionate about it. I uh, think about it all the time, and and how it affects our society, how it fa- affects cities, municipalities, land use policy, uh, the technology sector. And so, um, I'm glad to be here today and chat with Ben about well, about mobility today and where I where I see this going in the future.
0: So what's so what's it been like? We've scooters have become kind of like they've gone through i feel like the smallest hype cycle of all time in terms of like the darling to hate it and kind of blase about it and, and making jokes and memes and kind of like literally like a three-week time span but it's sort of captured a lot of the conversation i know you know the funding rounds and the kind of valuations and all mm-hmm. the kind of you know har- har- the the harbingers of the sort of tech hype cycle have kind of gone come come and gone to some extent, even though yeah. I think it's really top of mind for, you know, most of the big VCs. So, I mean, what's it like seeing something, especially micro mobility. I remember like Horace, um, a Simcoe talking about this, uh, a couple of years ago. And I, it sort of went in one ear and out the other. And, it, and <laughs> I think for, for me and for a lot of other people, it only really clicked earlier this year. Why do you think that is? And what kind of, what was it like for it to yeah. sort of get to the stage?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I alluded to it earlier, but, uh, you know, so much of the narrative in in the tech and transportation, automaker space has been around uh, this acronym, CASE or ACES. So a- autonomy, um, electrification, connected services, um, and sharing. Um, and so you've seen billions and billions of dollars being invested into autonomous driving vehicles, whether at Waymo or Argo or, uh, drive AI and obviously all the Oems investing in their own av technology stack and uh, as you know uh, that's that's been the media narrative in transportation and most people are like oh yeah everything will just be self-driving uh in the last you know in the next 10 years or whatever um, <laughs> and and long and behold the you know there's uh, a lot of issues with that uh it's, autonomy can't solve all use cases and I think we kind of hit that trough of disillusionment Right now, in the S curve of autonomy, where you know, uh, not everywhere is like the suburbs of Phoenix where Waymo can run a service. Uh, it's not like Seattle or Toronto or Boston in the winter. Um, and so, you see this shift in the narrative and like people looking for new solutions and uh, uh, new innovations. And you know, we find that in Uber ride hailing services or car sharing. Um, And then all of a sudden, this little company in Santa Monica, California, comes out of nowhere in less than a year, um, uh, you know, uh, building this $2 billion valuation transportation company with consumer grade scooters uh, and quickly expanding across uh, uh, the United States and now Europe. Uh, In Israel uh, in the matter of less than 12 months. And it's it's just been absolutely fascinating. And as you said, it's captured the attention of the media and business press. um, And, you know, it's usually perceived in the negative light. Uh, And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's something new. Yeah, why is that?
0: I'm just, I'm wondering why it's, I mean, there's been a pretty visceral... Mm -hmm. kind of reaction and mocking from different quarters. Like, what do you think the nerve that this thing struck? It's frivolity, like the scooter is a silly seeming thing just on its face, basically. Is that it?
1: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, especially here in North America, uh, our whole world, you know, has been built around automobiles being the predominant mode of transportation, right? And it's been this, you know, the automobile has been the single object of conveyance where you use it for any type trip type, whether it's taking your kids to soccer practice or going a half a mile to the grocery store, um, and then when someone shows up one day with this kind of like foreign-looking toy object, uh, and, and they start littering around town and parking spaces and sidewalks, uh, you know, people mock it and, and laugh at it because you know the their whole worldview is kind of uh, is 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 uh, is challenged in that moment, right? Um, and so, I, I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, the the car is slowly becoming unbundled into different, um, different modalities for the different jobs to be done, uh, and scooters are starting to pick off, like, we're really in the early days of this, but scooters are starting to pick off, like, uh, you know, trips in the zero, zero, two, zero, three-mile range where you need to get yourself to a meeting or to lunch and, or a bar, um, and... It's the best way to do that in an urban environment and context. So I think uh, you, you know it's <laughs> it's interesting because most people grew up with the car and the automobile, and that's all they know. And so you, you wake up one day and there's something new, and people instantly challenge that and question it. Um, and especially like you, you know in parallel or, or or comparison to Uber, Uber is not really that much different because it, it's literally just taking cars people own and operate and, you know, adding a routing mechanism and application on top of it where, and so Uber, Uber is more comfortable and conformable to the existing environment as opposed to scooters. It, it kind of demands a space and, and and people to uh, adapt to them in, in their urban context. So, Mm -hmm. um,
0: and I mean, do you? What do you think about in terms of scooter versus bikes? Because I, I mean, I yeah. think what came first. I started paying attention to this more closely when the bikes, and then scooters. I felt like they were a fast follow. Like what what happened, yeah. and and what, and what's the difference in terms of use? You, you said the phrase jobs to be done. What are the, what's the difference in terms of the jobs that we hire, yeah. bikes versus scooters, and then maybe even versus
1: uh, cars and and public transit, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> as you said, it's rapidly evolving. Um, and I'm still trying to formulate my my, my thought process around this uh, because honestly, the scooter thing caught me off guard as well. Uh, I, Like you said, I was researching uh, bike share, dockless bike share in China um, and then e-bikes, uh, the e-bike supply chain in Europe and Asia. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, last September, someone told me to download the Bird app, um, and I downloaded it. You know, I couldn't use it obviously because uh, it was only live in Santa Monica, uh, and and I saw some photos of scooters sitting around, and I thought, oh, that's kind of silly. Uh, why would anyone use that? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it,
0: that.
1: yeah, exactly. Uh, and and uh, it wasn't until December, when I was actually down in LA, uh, I happened to be in Santa Monica. And I saw a scooter for the first time and just walking around, I saw it was, it was kind of mind blowing to be honest, like the diversity of users and the adoption of these scooters around Santa Monica, Uh, uh, whether it was a, you know, a six year old man or a 18 year old teenager um, using these scooters as, you know, a form of utility to uh, move around the city of Santa Monica and, You know, it was kind of, it was kind of funny because LA being one of the most image conscious places in the world, uh, we're kind of, you know, it was rapidly adopting these kind of goofy looking scooter form factor. Um, and so (laughs) a lot of people ask me like, why, why scooters? Why, what, what, what made scooters take off? And I think it has a lot to do, uh, with the form factor, right? Um, if you think about it, uh, a bike, there's a lot of negative stigma around bikes, especially in the U S um, you get sweaty. Uh, you have to wear certain clothes or wear certain shoes, but with a scooter, you could be in high heels and a dress and you can hop on and go for a mile, a mile and a half and have, you know, no problem. Um, and I think that's a really, really attractive uh, uh, to the, you know, a vast majority of, of people inside of our urban environments. And you know, we're really seeing that as adoption has taken off in West LA, San Francisco, San San Diego, and now uh, places like where I live in Portland. Um, the scooter has just it's just become this form factor that is attractive to the vast majority of people, um, and that's what I find really interesting about it um, and how it will evolve. And
0: I think people are gonna. Do you think people are gonna? Uh more adopt scooters in a more than, than bikes. Like obviously Mm -hmm. it invites the question of like looking, is looking at a slice of that as meaningful as thinking about the whole and where the micro or the, the multimodality is kind of orchestrated from, but even looking at it individually, do you think that scooters are a bigger slice? Have they unlocked a bigger slice than even the bikes had?
1: I, yeah, it's your first question. Yeah, I think they have, uh, they, I, 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 The way I'm thinking about scooters right now is that they're kind of this gateway drug to micromobility in general uh, and multimodality more broadly, um, where, you know, if, if a pedal bike was sitting on the street, you know, most people, you know, would just move past it, right? When the scooter is sitting there, it's kind of foreign object. It's funny looking, but it looks fun, right? And, and oh, right, right. It, yeah, and and I've seen this in, in like Santa Monica and in, uh, in, in Portland and over the last few weeks, people will go up to the scooter, they'll like, pick it up, they'll check it out and then they'll pull out their phone. Uh, and again, these are kind of like billboards on the sidewalk for, uh, these mobile applications on the app store. Um, people download it and, you know, they're introduced to this whole world of digital transportation and, uh, uh, in like, uh, Bird is generating vast amounts of users at, at an unprecedented rate, um, and I think just that you know <laughs> because it looks like a toy, it's so attractive to so many people. Uh, but that's where you know disruption comes in, and, and it it starts to rapidly evolve uh, into something more and into a utility that people can use and depend on for high frequent use cases on a daily basis, right?
0: So, who does it disrupt? use the word disruption like from the uh, from the like strict sense of the word like who what's underserved
1: what's overserved, you know yeah how, who's getting disrupted yeah absolutely uh so uh, i think we talk about this on twitter uh quite a bit but uh i think there's two camps right now uh i think we should define the incumbents right uh, and a lot of people will say uber and lyft they're they're the incumbents here right uh they built these ride hailing uh, um, empires, um, and they have you know millions, tens of millions of active users. Um, they have the most to lose right now. And, and on the other side, uh, if you look at the transportation market more holistically, uh, Uber and Lyft are really you know just a small, small percentage of trips. Right, less than two percent in the United States, or no, less than one percent. Um, but in reality, if we look at, you know, uh, mode share, it's really the pri- private automobile that has 75, 80% of, of, of mode share in the United States. Um, and, and this is where I think, you know, the automakers, the OEMs are actually the incumbents here in the transportation space. Um, where, again, as I alluded to earlier, uh, most people buy a vehicle. They buy, you know, Honda Accord. Uh, and they use that vehicle for every job, every, every task they have uh, in terms of transportation, uh, A to B. Um, and that's how they grew up and that's what they're used to. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the automakers and OEMs, uh, you know, uh, have been over serving the vast majority of people for the last, you know, a uh, few decades, right. Uh, cars, cars, obviously have been getting heavier, bigger, uh, faster, uh, yet average speed travel time, uh, in cities has been decreasing. Um, and so you really have these, uh, over built consumer vehicles with 15 cup holders and fi inside and all these different features. Uh, you know, I, I really think is in an over manner, uh, um, yeah, automakers have most to lose right now uh, because they they're going after high margin products suvs trucks things like that um, and you see examples of that like ford dropping their sedan line in, in in favor of you know f-150s which are a higher margin product right um and so I, I in my perspective uh just i i really think the incumbents here are the automakers and oems um they have built all the processes around vehicle manufacturing at, at scale and at volume um and they they need to sell more vehicles at the end of the day and then the scooter comes in and says hey we can pick off you know underserved or underserved people who don't need a F150 or uh you know Toyota Camry or what whatnot uh to go 2 miles and uh, people can start hiring a scooter to you know replace those trips um And that's where I I think things get really interesting, right? Um, Is these scooters are rapidly uh, being adopted in our cities, generating millions of new account creations and uh, starting to pick off these trips, but they're also creating new trips, right? Uh, They're enabling people to take uh, uh, new trips they wouldn't have taken without the scooter. Uh, And that's, that's what I find really interesting about any new disruptive technology It actually enables new use cases that weren't thought of previously. Uh, and similar to like when the automobile uh, rolled out in our cities in the early 1900s, it enabled people to take new kinds of trips. And that's, you know, why we have suburbs today or exurbs or the interstate system, because it really, uh, enabled humans to move further, faster, farther, uh, uh, in a way that has never happened in human history, and I and I th- think we're starting to see that right now with these scooter sharing services uh, as they start to roll out in cities.
0: Yeah, to some extent, they're kind of maybe they're comp- the interesting stuff is when they're competing against non-consumption or yes, they're competing against not doing something, and then what is the result of you know doing that? I mean, I'm just thinking about somewhere like Manhattan, which is so close together relatively speaking and dense and yet it's i, w- I was there uh, a few months back for the first time in a while and i was like wow i forgot how enormous the city is so it's from like a human scale it's it's enormous but the the congestion mm-hmm. and the gridlock and just like the idiocy if you think about kind of the, car, the grid of cars in relation to something like everybody being on things like scooters and bikes and small small vehicles personal vehicles yeah Um, yeah exactly do you think do you speaking of that what do you think um, what do you think is these things are going to evolve into like i think that there's a pretty obvious like space for for scooters to run in terms of their current iteration and and where they're currently at Um, but and, and, and it's very interesting and it has, has a lot of consequences, but in terms of mm-hmm. what this means going forward, particularly in the sort of autonomous vehicle, uh, future, like where does this fit in and what does the scooter become? Does it sort of evolve into a kind of more enclosed kind of different type of, of mm-hmm. personal autonomous vehicle that can kind of, you know, what does it, what does it become?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people sit look at it and think scooter, right. And I, I caution people not to just think of these as just scooters. Right. Um, uh, because if we like look at the history and we look at the supply chain and vendors, they're all, you know, the, the enabling technology here was really, uh, lithium ion, high capacity lithium ion battery packs. Um, and that's super interesting because that paired with, uh, the supply chain in China with e-bike components, scooter components, uh, it, it opens up these new processes and manufacturing capabilities, uh, to start, you know, rapidly building, iterating upon the scooter. Um, and we're already seeing that right now in, you know, bird, bird's been out less again, less than 12 months, and they've already have had three or four different models they're testing. Um, and the funny part is that, you know, they bought off-the-shelf scooters from Segway Ninebot uh, to begin with. These are just consumer-facing scooters that happen to be, you know, fit into the, the sharing model, and uh, right now we're seeing the repercussions of that. They're not obviously made to be used, you know, seven, eight, nine times a day um, over a, a six to 12-month lifespan. Um, and so you're seeing Bird and Lime and other vendors out there actually investing millions of dollars into building out their own engineering, vehicle design uh, 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 programs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's, and we haven't even seen what, what you know, what's coming out of that yet. It, and, and that's where I think things get really, really fascinating. Um because right, because they're getting actually,
0: experience with us with a complex exactly. supply
1: chain, but using
0: commodity components, and exactly. that that combination of things, if you let that kind of marinate long enough, could you know go up market and exactly. up in complexity and size, and eventually you know grow into something some weird alien-looking device. I'm I'm still it's, I'm almost <laughs> imagining kind of like a one of those kids' cars, but for for ups in a way, yeah, like yeah. like that type of thing, like um, which. And and I mean, do you, do you actually? As a crazy thought, in terms of the the the, for talking about the far future, like these flying experiments, in terms of in terms of the uh, flying different flying car, you know, so supposed flying car projects, and even just sort of drones just getting bigger, which yeah. is you know, just again, this similar in a similar vein because it's a supply chain uh, kind of I don't know positive externality or whatever you want to call it um does that do you think about the air when you think about a modality
1: yeah yeah i do i, I do and i don't uh i think uh, you know these flying flying vehicles and uh vertical takeoff um concepts and prototypes are fascinating interesting uh but again you know these are very very expensive projects and uh, very similar to you know what autonomous vehicle r&d is going through right now uh i think They'll hit a trough in the next few years as well. Whether it's that's the Uber air taxi experiments and projects going on, uh, but I, I do think they'll have a place in long long term, um, especially with connecting uh, exurb suburbs together. Um, but again, I, I think what's most interesting is what's going to happen on the ground because yeah. you know that's not sexy, right? Is that's not yeah, you know, it's not a cool narrative like oh a bike you know the bikes going to evolve into something meaningful that can take on a ton of different jobs to be done mm-hmm. right um it, it's right. just you know it, it doesn't have that marketing appeal that you see with autonomy and flying vehicles at, <laughs> right? right um and that's and you know that's where it, again that's where you know disruption does come from is you know how is these these ground micro mobility vehicles going to evolve and i think you made up a really good point you ma- you made a good point in, in saying that you're imagining evolving into these alien-looking things, um, it, which is funny because you know cars today, like whether it's a Mercedes or a Ford, they're you know they they're you, you hire them as like a, a badge or a you know s- signal status symbol as well um, beyond just transportation of A to B. can we start on yeah. signaling and how many people just u- <laughs> signal by using the word signaling. Sorry, that's a sidebar of. Uh- <laughs> Bone I to pick with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um but anyway like the, the scooter looks goofy right like uh, there's no way around that that it, it does look goofy when you're riding at first and people like to make fun of it uh but the thing i find most interesting is that it kind of it, it 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 almost changes the culture right and it, it lets people say oh this actually has a lot of utility and yeah, it might look a bit goofy, but everyone else is doing it as well. And they're all riding these goofy looking toy scooters around the city. Uh, I I don't have a big enough, you know, I don't have a problem with riding these around and people making fun of me. And that's where I think it's interesting because, you know, the, a lot of these urban vehicle prototypes we've seen over the last decades, they look, you know, they're not sexy. They're not, they're not terribly designed well, uh, but they they have functionality and utility. And I, f- I guess where I'm going with this, I think the scooters unlock, you know, bring down that cultural barrier where you always have to be seen driving a nice looking vehicle where, hey, maybe I'm on a Segway now or a scooter or a kind of like this pod alien looking thing as you alluded to. And that's okay, right? And I think that's where scooters you know, scooters are that enabling uh, service and technology to that pathway of building these new types of funky looking vehicles that can conform and work better in our urban environments with congestion, leveraging bike lanes, leveraging exploiting bike lanes to get around quicker and faster. Um, And so that's, you know, that's one aspect I really find fascinating about scooters is that, again, it's people are riding these things in a place like LA or San Diego or DC where, you know, black BMWs and Mercedes Benz are the are the norm, and everyone yeah. has one. or A lot of people have one, <laughs> and right. now they they're taking these scooters around. Um, you wonder if some, to
0: some extent Instagram has sort of out like the car. Yeah, I feel like cars are are tacky in terms of the Instagram currency because you know Instagram values sort of experiences and sort of moments and things like that that you're sharing, and so that's been the because I'm thinking where does that all go because like people aren't going to stop signaling so what's the yeah. <laughs> the outlet I guess it's social media or something like that
1: yeah yeah and you were seeing that already with bird you know building a social media presence and right people yeah you know I don't post a photo in the back of my uber right uh, <laughs> right but I will <laughs> I will post a photo of me taking a bird to you know some restaurant and that's you know where this and that's a whole nother topic. This conversion of commerce, retail, and transportation, I see coming as well. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, the scooter form factor is gonna it's enabling new technology and supply chain, but also uh, changing behaviors and norms at the same time.
0: So if the if the future, if the AV and flying vehicle future is far enough away. That kind of begs the question as to who is who is best positioned to win, in kind of a you know short to medium term, and does that position them well for that that long term future?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating question. Um, you know, I, they, I, Horace Dadu, uh he actually proposes this concept of. The micromobility switch. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, uh, do tell. Yeah, he explain it. He, uh, essentially, uh, when disruption happens in disruption theory, there's a this switch where we go from wired communication to wireless communication, um, and his thesis or ideas that uh, people in cities, urban environments, will go from being driven around via Uber taxis. Uh, bus, public transit to driving themselves and people in the exurbs in the country uh, towns will actually go from driving themselves to uh, being driven around, if that makes sense. So there's a switch where autonomy, the early autonomy can cover the early use cases of, you know, in the suburb or in the exurbs in city, in town, country towns, uh, where it's easier, there's less people. uh, It's, it's easy to go to market with, with autonomous vehicle service. Um, but in cities where it's more challenging, there's more edge cases with lots of pedestrians and people huh. and things happening is where, uh, you know uh, instead of us being driven around in Ubers and lists, we'll actually, you know, switch into driving ourselves in these dense urban environments. And that, that's, you know, I, I tend to agree with Horace thinking around that. Um, and I think yeah. the, you know, Uber and Lyft are actually, obviously they're thinking about that as well in, in the last six months. Uh, Uber acquired Jump, e-bike, dockless e-bike share company for $200 million and Lyft acquired uh, bike share company by the name of Motivate that, uh, you know, operates some big, big systems like New York system, DC, San Francisco, Portland. Um, and mm-hmm. so these ride hailing firms are already seeing that. And I, I, I imagine they're seeing it in their data <laughs> with trips under three miles. Um, and they're trying to stay on top of that. And I think, you know, the Ubers, lifts, ditties of the world are are probably the best position in the short to medium term time timeframe, as, as you suggested. Um, but, you know, <laughs> things get interesting when Bird and Lime are, you know, they're growing at unprecedented rates. They they're not paying anything. They're paying no marketing dollars um, uh, to acquire new customers, um, and that I think, Definitely. you know, I think that that's a little it causes it's a cause of concern for some of these companies um, like Lyft and Uber. But they're already reacting to it. Um, but you know, who I view as the real incumbents? the automakers are, are kind of sitting back and watching right now at this point. Uh, Cause they're, you know, they've been investing billions, millions of dollars into autonomy um, wow. and their kind of mobility services, like, you know, free floating car share or uh, uh, like taxi hailing and things like that. Um, and so <laughs> I can't predict the future, but uh, I, I, I'm definitely a little bit concerned with, uh, you know, the OEM's response and if they're going to respond or if they're going to wait, um, because, you know, most, most automakers I would say would think of the e-bike or the e-scooter as an accessory to the automobile, right? Uh, because the point of integration is around your personal automobile. The e-bike is kind of just this periphery uh, peripheral accessory to your vehicle. Um, whether Bird and Lime and Skip and all these other companies are like, no, the the scooter is actually its own service, and we're building our processes and our key capabilities all around people using the scooter uh, to get around, and that's 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 going to be really fascinating to watch, especially over the next 12, 24 months.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it would be something if uh, if the big the big incumbents whiffed on it because they 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 fell for the head fake of of AVs as maybe not mm-hmm. ultimately doomed to fail but maybe on a longer time scale than uh, is maybe warranted their their current investment or at yeah. least that investment has opportunity costs in focusing on
1: things yeah, exactly. that look
0: like one which is obviously uh, one of them um, you you mentioned data what is the what's your view on of data, I mean, in order to have, we didn't talk about what kind of one of the m- most important modalities, uh, which is public transit and kind of the municipality more generally. Like, what does the, the data picture look like in our current implementations that we're seeing, and yeah. where does that need to go for it to kind of serve all the different stakeholders?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, let's I'll break this down so on the private side. You obviously have these companies, whether it's a car maker or a ride hailing firm or uh, one of these micro mobility companies such as Bird and Lyft. Um, they, When they think about data, uh, obviously they're generating tons of data. Um, and it's funny because Waymo or, or Uber, they probably know more about a city than a city knows about themselves with the amount of data they're generating and collecting. Uh, And similar story with like Waze and Google Maps, Uh, but they, you know, they have the precedent or where they need to protect their, their competitive data. They don't, you know, Uber and Lyft have been fighting cities for the last five years uh, with data sharing uh, because they don't want to give up trip data to the city because at that point, Lyft and Uber can see each other's data. Um, And there's a lot of competitive concerns, uh, especially with ride hailing firms when they're spending so much cash on acquiring new drivers, they're acquiring riders. Uh, you know, you just don't want to give that up, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But it's funny, uh, with these new dockless mobility companies, they're actually, you know, they're giving the data, availability data, where the vehicles are, trip data, they're they're giving that to cities from day one. Um, and so on the, like, the public side, Uh, You know, cities have a need for planning data. They want to know where people are going, what mode they're switching from. Um, All these questions when they're thinking about how do we invest, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into infrastructure in the next 10 to 15 years? Where should that money be going? We need data to help, you know, uh, help us with, with planning there. Um, and then on the public transit side, you probably, you know, viewers or listeners have probably heard about how Uber and Lyft are competing with public transit. They're capturing public transit riders on the platform uh, and cities, you know, aren't happy about that. But again, we don't really have the, any meaningful data from the ride hailing companies on that right now. Um, and cities really want to know, are, are, are people foregoing a, a bus, train trip and taking Lyft and Uber to work? Um, are they connecting to transit questions like that Um, and then the third piece where i think the tech industry especially is really learning about it's on equity uh, and data surrounding you know uh, uh, is 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 this new service this new modality is it actually serving all people inside a city is it serving the underbanked the non-banked communities of concern places like that Uh, and that uh, you know that's one of the really, really, really important questions for cities on the public side is that they they need to know who these companies are serving at the end of the day, uh, and um, these new mobility companies really you know they they're going to have to adapt in uh, to serving uh, providing products and solutions for uh, uh, for people who don't have smartphones for people who don't have bank accounts and. That's where that's where I find this whole world where you know the private and public transportation worlds are colliding, and they're realizing they have to learn from one another um, in this regard. So, uh, you know, the data, the data narrative and story for cities is uh, is rapidly evolving. But I'm seeing really you know positive signs moving forward with these new dockless providers who are actually sharing data from day one. Um, that that's a really, really, uh, encouraging, um, sign for me. Um, and I think we'll see new companies obviously emerge from this data sharing, um, third party clearing houses who can actually audit and validate this data. Um, and ultimately I think this data will be actually used for new kind of user fees in cities. So traditionally, uh, auto you know transportation infrastructure has been paid for with you know income ta- or property tax and the gas tax. Um, but now as transportation is switching to more electric, uh, the gas tax isn't paying for infrastructure improvements and maintenance. Uh, we're going to need to switch to an actual per trip uh, per usage fee. Uh, and we're already seeing signs of that in, inside of our cities, whether at airports, you pay extra three dollars for a fee. Or a scooter trip here in Portland, the city charges 25 cents per trip, um, and so it's this whole fascinating conversation around data sharing, but also how that you know the implications there for around taxing and um, generating new revenue sources for cities to actually build out the infrastructure needed for these new modalities.
0: What do you think the the vision for how this could be very beneficial for sort of, quote unquote, the public good. Because I think, um, particularly from kind of the left, I've been hearing a lot of criticism and ridicule about scooters as sort of kind of late capitalism's solution to crumbling public infrastructure as the latest and greatest piece of that. Like, why, what do you think that folks who kind of are a bit cynical about, about, we're already cynical about Uber and Lyft are cynical about these scooters. And how does this, how does this benefit the public good? uh, if this kind of goes well and things are, are properly mediated between the public and private sector.
1: Yeah. Um, If this were, you know, these new modalities and new services, if it, you know, if it goes well, I I actually see them in the long run, actually reversing uh, the decline of public transit ridership. So like, especially in North America, we've seen uh, bus ridership, Public transit ridership declining year over year, and that's I think a lot of the 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 concern and anger stem from public transit being constantly underfunded, and that right. just creates this whole loop of when it's underfunded, poor service, less people ride it, um, totally. you know. And so I think the scooter companies and Uber Lyft more broadly have the opportunity, and and I think they are you know you, you're starting to see this already where they are actually partnering with public transit and uh municipalities in this regard Lyft is offering to subsidize or you know offer a discount for anybody who takes a scooter or you know dockless vehicle to uh, the the, the bar or mini station Caltrain station uh, you're seeing um, uh, companies like motivate who actually use a smart card, the public transit smart card as part of their payment system where you can unlock uh, a bike, uh, with your with your Clipper card in San Francisco uh, for the Ford, Ford Go-Bike system, uh, so you're starting to see these places where you know public transit and private operators are starting to overlap. Um, but I think a lot of people uh, who are angry about scooters, angry about Uber and Lyft, they uh, you know I think their anger comes from just the the decades and decades of neglect and underfunding on any type of alternative transportation, whether that be public transit or whether that be building bike lanes or uh, carpooling, you know, type infrastructure programs and services. Um, and you know, when these scooter companies and ride-sharing companies come in and they're getting adoption at unprecedented rates, uh, I think there's you know, uh, a lot of people <laughs> uh, uh, struggle with that, and you know, uh, because they wanted. Public transit to be funded or invested in uh, twenty years ago, right? And I, I, I think they're, you know, they're right in some regards, but um, unfortunately, uh, you know, our whole, again, in North America, our built infrastructure was built around automobiles, and at the expense of public transit and alternative mobility infrastructure, right? Um, and so we're seeing this, you know, right now we're seeing that. The, these new modalities into cities. And it's starting to, again, it's starting to have people question, oh, do, can I take this new mode? Can I take the scooter? Can I take this bike to my destination? Um, and it's really, yeah, it's fulfilling in some ways the role that public transit should have fulfilled over the last 100 years, but it has been neglected constantly. And that's where we're seeing this backlash and tension right now. Right.
0: Do you think? Um, what's your view in terms of what public transit's role in kind of this 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 hybrid world is going to be? Like, what what jobs are going to be left for it mm-hmm. to do? Because I feel like it 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 in some ways, car ownership is the enemy of of my enemy is is or is my friend? Or you know, in terms of of, <laughs> of both public transit, sort of partisans if you will and the kind of folks working on mobility it seems like to some extent they're looking they're pointed at the same thing Um, if if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah Um, it's a you know a a lot of a lot of companies uh, are promising to work hand in hand with public transit operators and things like that Um, uh, honestly I think a lot of it is just marketing (laughs) Uh, and, and, and good PR. Uh, but, uh, the one thing that, you know, again, is that public transit has been neglected infrastructure, you know, outside of New York and, uh, San Francisco and places like Seattle, Portland, most people do not take public transit anywhere. Um, and some people, you know, some companies propose public transit being the backbone of the, you know, a multimodal world. Uh, I agree with that to some extent, but, you know, public transit doesn't, you know, it can't, it's not a safety net, it can't take me where I need to go at all hours of the day, uh, as opposed to like a, a good operating system in in Europe or Germany and London, and places like that, where they have phenomenal public transit um, in the US, it's just not the case. And so I think there's this tension where, yeah, the company ride-hailing firm such as Uber or Lyft, uh, you know, they built out this network, this of uh, you know supply of cars and liquidity, uh, where you can get a ride on on demand within you know five minute ETA, uh, and it really provides that safety net and you know level of service uh, where um, public transit in the United States and North America just can't can't fill in right now um and so i I think moving forward where you know the politicians and the public are gonna have to realize that we're gonna see more private public partnerships with ride-hailing firms and who've built out these incredible networks with you know millions of users and millions of drivers and um it's good yeah it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers but you know i I think uh unfortunately given the state of public transit in the u.s that operators agencies need to partner with these you know new mobility companies uh to offer a robust service in a multimodal world um and i i know a lot of people would disagree with that but uh i think that's uh where things you know things are headed given the state of you know context of where where we are in with our public transit infrastructure and funding, um, and so yeah, I, I can point to lots of different pilots going on between these new modality providers and public transit where things are working great, and uh, other pilots where you know it, it's been other failure. Hmm. Yeah, I mean,
0: but this this brings us to a think a place where you and I might disagree. I mean, uh, I think that it's particularly the scooters and the the stuff where. The, it's it's more it's less about building network effects as opposed to essentially scale and some logistics and kind of you know there's demand side economies of scale, but that's not really like a marketplace so that to me feels like something that if there were the political will to fund that this mm-hmm. you know a municipality having offered you know fixed cost investment or whatever plus some variable cost in terms of Uh, operating the service and whatever maybe some technology provider white labels a lot of the functionality um, of kind of the software side of things and they just kind of buy a bunch of these commodity things and and public transit becomes micro mobility like wouldn't that wouldn't that be something that um, might it it might be more like if you can't beat them join them type type uh, mentality from the from the public transit side of things
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a, a definitely interesting thought. And I uh, yeah, given my background working with agencies. I, I, I struggle to see, you know, a future where I, I guess where you're suggesting where you buy, you know, a white label components and back end system where, um, you know, say BART starts there. It, it just correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying, let's say an example, if BART in San Francisco started, a service with scooters. Yeah, I mean, uh, how hard could connecting. it be?
0: How hard could it be? I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm saying in a <laughs> few years when it's co- like everything evolves, right? So it's, it's, it becomes yes. commoditized. Yes. Not just the components, but the actual patterns, hardware, software, logistical that are established by these <laughs> private companies at this point. I mean, why can't the, the, once those are essentially utility services, uh, and all the kinks have been sort of worked out. Uh, Why can't right, the yeah. government just go in and be like, okay, well, this is like low. Oh,
1: it becomes a public utility. Yeah, area, so
0: it's and it doesn't even need to. Be, I mean, like you could just sort of like, yeah, just lay out. I mean, you just buy a bunch of scooters. And I guess what I'm saying is, it's not like Uber, where yeah, Uber is like a seriously complicated flywheel of you know different sort of people interacting with each other. And and I don't know that a municipality would be. Qualified necessarily to take that on and operate that at this point, but the scooters. I mean, not. It's no knock on the brilliance of it. It seems like a very pareto efficient thing that doesn't seem. (laughs) It doesn't seem crazy hard or complicated. It's it's something that I can see the curve, the learning curve of the industry moving fairly quickly, and it's just like it's almost Uh, like such an obvious thing that it feels like we're we're headed to utilityville in the next couple years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that—that <laughs> that opens a whole new can of worms. But I—I uh, I would. I love opening cans of worms. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, a lot of—I think there's a lot of pundits and you know critics out there who say, "Oh, anyone can start a scooter company." Um, Isn't there? Did I,
0: I not see that there was a like a scooter, like create your own scooter company thing that came yes. out a few like a couple yeah, months ago exact, where it was like. Look, through the like, looking glass of the hype cycle, it's like once you once you have a create startup <laughs> printing press or whatever of the pattern of the of the week, you know you're hitting yeah. a certain point. It's like what
1: happens every time. Like, yeah, Exactly right. Uh, well, I think that speaks especially to my point that I, I think these scooter companies it, it's a lot harder service than most people give credit to. Uh, right, they're losing. You know, they're essentially you're. It, you're, you have all these assets on your balance sheets, right? Uh, I, I can't imagine how many bird and lime have it's probably 10s of 1000s, if not hundreds of 1000s of electric vehicles on their balance sheet that they have to maintain, uh, uh, care for operate, uh, uh, do safety checks for it, it gets really complicated really fast, especially when you have real humans driving these things on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Um, and he, like, in the last six months, I saw, you know, f- three or four different companies, startups announce uh, they were going to start a scooter share service. Not one of them have got off the ground. Uh, I think the company you alluded to, GOAT, got off the ground in Austin with a couple hundred scooters, uh, but they quickly realized that, you know, this is a lot more difficult than we thought, and we we're going to pivot our business model to this, you know, fleet model, uh, as a service type thing where you, you buy a hundred scooters on the goat platform, you get access to the software. Uh, we'll give you the scooters and you can go run and operate your own service. Um, right. And and so yeah, I, again, there's been, there's probably six to 10 different companies, startups in Europe doing the same thing where they're like, we're going to launch a scooter sharing service in Brussels or in Berlin, uh, but it, I, I don't think the majority of these little companies, little startups, are actually going to get off the ground uh, because it is much harder than people give it credit to or credit for um, to run these these these. Essentially, they're free-floating electric vehicle companies at the end of the day. And if we, you know, if we want to draw a parallel uh, to automobiles, there's free-floating. Uh, 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 automobile companies car sharing services out there and those are really 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 tough to run Um, uh, especially at a scale and density Uh, you know these vehicles cost six six seven eight hundred dollars a month and they get used a couple times a day it's a pain to reposition the fuel to maintain especially because none of these automobiles are even uh, you know Respect for sharing. They're not made to be used 15, 20% of, uh, in a 24 hour period. Um, and so again, I, 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 think these operations services like what bird and lime are providing are, are, actually really, really difficult. Um, and a lot of operators are having trouble and they're, uh, you know, they're trying to get ahead right now. And it, if anyone wants to check out, you could go on the bird charger forum on, on Facebook. Uh, just to see all, all you know, the operational complexities and challenges these 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 giant companies or these companies are facing on a daily basis.
0: Hey, can you talk a bit about the sort of burgeoning, I guess you'd call it a sharing economy role of scooter charger? Mm-hmm. And is that just sort of a kind of quirky thing, or should I read more into that uh, as a as a tread that's sort of ancillary to this or, I, or, or attached to it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's it, I, I I find it really fascinating uh, in a couple uh, re, in, in couple aspects of it is that um, it's it's a, it's a it's a gig economy job, a contracting type 1099 job that is attractive to a lot of people who wouldn't drive uh, for Uber, for Lyft, or for Postmates, Grubhub places like that. Right. Uh, I, th- I think that's an interesting point. Uh, because it, it's really low maintenance you don't have to interact with people you can grab free scooters and you pay for your transportation uh, for that for the week if you charge them overnight um, and so it, it's a low time commitment it's pretty easy especially if you live next to these these nests where you put out the scooters in the morning um, and then secondly uh, it, the companies themselves like bird and lime, it, they don't seem to have a problem with acquiring chargers. Like it's, they're not paying, you know, hundreds of dollars to acquire a new charger to the platform as opposed to a Postmates or a Grubhub or uh, a Lyft is paying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that really, really interesting uh, in several, you know, because, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft, everyone was saying how uh, scooter companies, E-bike companies can use their network of chargers, or sorry, drivers, uh, leverage that channel and convert them to you know scooter chargers, scooter operations, maintenance people. Uh, but really, in reality, Bird and Lime are you know don't seem to have a problem with acquiring these these chargers and these mechanics uh, in the in their new markets. Um, so I I I'd I love to hear your thoughts on that because it, right now it it seems like. Uh, People are asking Bird and Lime for, hey, give me more chargers. Give me more chargers. I want to charge more. And they don't really even have to because they have so much demand at this point for being part of their network of charging and mechanics um, for these scooter sharing companies. Yeah, I
0: can't tell if that's like a clever decentralization thing or like a strange distorted market Mm -hmm. uh, kind of failure in terms of – you have people like basically buying electricity for – it's like a pass through to the utility company to the sort of, yep. it's, it, I don't know. Yep. It's, it's a strange, like I can't tell if it's, it's sort of a good or a bad thing. And I can't tell necessarily if it, I mean, I guess you you could see, you could see it being kind of a, a second thing that Uber eats and Uber drivers, like yep. adding to the flywheel of different ways um, of making I, money. I have but, a,
1: I have a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I talked to a, a charger in West LA the other day. And I kid you not, he said he would do it for free just because he thinks the, the services are, you know, uh, are a public good and they are a net positive for society. Um, I, f- I found that fascinating because I, I mean, m- myself, I wouldn't do this for free uh, charging scooters. But uh, it, it's just kind of interesting how, you know, people view scooters and, you know, wh- what the impacts of them on our cities and societies are more broadly. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's something to watch as time evolves and seeing what the turn rate of scooter chargers is. Is it more of just a novelty effect right now? Um, it, it'll be fascinating to see. And I, I really, you know, I'm really interested in watching how Uber and Lyft will tap into their, you know, obviously their network of drivers and couriers for Uber Eats and seeing how they, Play into this whole micromobility hmm. uh, operation space as well, and I guess
0: kind of my last my last question is around the idea of ownership, vehicle ownership, and I think depending on your theory of how things play out across modalities and with autonomous vehicles, etc., um, that you'll you'll either say that the um, I mean, I guess. I guess ownership is is it's also an emotional thing the idea of owning a car yeah. is beyond just sort of functional jobs if you will it's it's kind of feeling it's, independent it's yes. a kind of it's almost it's got some homey type things which I think actually interestingly alludes to what cars might become or be in the future when they're self-driving because they might maybe turn more into these homes and rooms, but, but, but even today's cars have that kind of homey feel, um, and the attachment and, and America in particular, the, the car culture and, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's an open question depending on the different models. What does, do we own cars? Are we just subscribing to a fleet? Are we share, or do we owning and sharing? Like, am I going to own a car in 10 years?
1: yeah yeah it's a no matter where i live you know <laughs> yeah um i mean personally i think it will be a, a hybrid approach uh with new mobility uh mass mobility as a service uh i think it at the end of the day it enables you know families uh households to actually not you know, go car free at the you know, at the end of the day but uh but actually, go down to one car, one ownership, car ownership household, right. um, and then being able to have kind of like this Netflix subscription where your, you know, your fifteen-year-old son or your wife or you know whatever uh, can tap into the subscription to, you know, do their jobs that need to be done, whether that's getting your groceries delivery through delivered through Instacart or you know going to soccer practice or whatnot. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't see, like most people assume that I see like this totally car free ownership world. And I definitely don't think that way at all. Uh, but I do, you know, I think the the positive aspect of new mobility, micromobility AVs is that it will actually, you know, decrease ownership, um, and offer people the, you know, these alternatives to get around where, uh, you, you don't have to ask the car to do everything for you. Um, and I think a lot of people will find a lot of freedom in what mobility as a service provides. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you, you take whatever's best for you in that moment of need. Um, and so, yeah, I think the jury's still out, like, how will this evolve over time? Um, especially with micro mobility because right now there's services. Um, but, you know, in places like L.A. or Portland, I, I've already seen, you know, multiple private scooters being purchased over the last, you know, few weeks of the service being out. And these yeah. these, yeah, these new services are actually enabling, like a, they're oh, kind of like, a like the free car showroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, they're the new dealership, right. essentially. Um, and they're in. The, they're introducing people to, right now they're introducing them to scooters, but I could see as e bikes start to evolve. Yeah, some alien looking personal cost.
0: transport vehicle that. People yeah, start exactly, to own. exactly. Like, if once you go into the ownership path of micromobility, now we're kind of combining the two, then a whole mm-hmm. new set of circumstances and kind of needs Absolutely. will arise around a personal device. A personal, de- oh, personal, personal, personal. Who makes personal yeah. devices out here? Yeah. Uh,
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Uh, okay. I lied. Second to last question. What, where does Apple, I have maintained, I have to, I have to sort of timestamp, you know, because I, I, I realize I can't find the tweet where I said this. So I'm going to say it here. Like people, I remember all these reports about project Titan about Apple and how they were, what do I say? How do I say they, they were toning down? They were, they were pivoting. They were focusing on kind of car kit, glorified car kit. Uh, like Project Titan was being moved, and the entire time I'm like, "That's totally, utterly not true, and that's not going to be where this ends up." Like, if you think that Apple is making some kind of ancillary bet on this, the, the R and D expenses beg to differ, and the kind of the hearsay and 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 recent reporting now. So, where yeah. do you, I mean, do you do you do you pay attention? To that do you think about Apple? I mean, there's a whole bunch of other kind of considerations around the computing ecosystem and content and how Apple approach that but do you, do you think about Apple is Apple are they going to be kind of the, have that last mover advantage or is this going to be like an epic failure of
1: thousands and thousands of people
0: with, you know, all this money and time spent
1: yeah uh, oh man um, so you, you know obviously Apple invests a ton of R&D money in a lot of different projects but the Project Titan you know it's been going on for I don't know four or five years at least um, it I, I, I always question what, what it would be like, would Apple be making some type of smart car looking thing that is, has a touchscreen inside of it. And it's designed by Johnny Ive, uh, and, you know, that, that could be interesting in some regards to uh, some people, but uh, I, I, I always question what could Apple do that no one else can do. Uh, and, you know, I, Right now, I don't think it has anything to do with micro mobility, unfortunately. Uh, just given the circumstances, you know, Apple is in Cupertino. They have twelve thousand parking spots. They don't even have a bike routing in Apple Maps. For crying out loud, um, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I can't really comment too much about what the future of Project Titan and how, if Apple can put play a role in mobility. Uh, but you know. I never discredit Apple so uh, or count them out. Um, and I think they can evolve and, and 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 change as, you know, the market is starting to move to this service mobility model. Um, you know, they have a n billion dollar investment in Diddy, right? Already. And that's yeah, we we haven't s what is coming out of that, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts because I know you've 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 tweeted it like about maybe an Apple e-bike or some, you know, some kind of product, micro mobility product that Apple could produce and design themselves. But I, I just don't see it at this point. I think we were too, you know, we we're still in a car first world and I don't think they see an e-bike as, you know, the iPhone, you know, the, the, you know, the iPhone, um, type device that, uh, uh, on seats, the the, the the modern day automobile, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh,
0: it's possible there's multiple projects. I feel like the, the bike may, it may be even sold as a fitness, you know, partially a fitness thing as well. Um, mm-hmm. in, in yeah, time, so with the watch. In, yeah, with the watch, exactly. Um, and I, I, but I do think that uh, Apple's advantage here would be in the kind of conversion of a car into something else like a room um, and when, and thinking about it as a room and thinking about it as a room that Johnny I designed for sort of sitting and watching Apple's sort of forthcoming TV service or whatever it may be um, another screen, another kind of computing surface or entertainment surface. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's obviously dependent on uh, lots of lower level sort of considerations and, and massive problems and autonomy to solve, yes. et cetera. So yeah, um, but yeah. Yep. Well, this was uh, this was great. I hope uh, everyone learned a few things from uh, from Michael's experience in the space. And uh, yeah, it was great to chat. Thanks, man. Appreciate you joining.
1: Hey, hey. Thanks, Ben, yeah. for having me.